Hello again, and welcome back to Farnham Film. This is one of two episodes covering one of the third set texts on paper two, Attack the Block. Usually with these required learning episodes, it's just me going through the context, going through the different kinds of important information that it is that you need to know to successfully answer any questions on Attack the Block on paper two. This episode's a little bit different. I've once again been joined by Ian Moreno-Melgar. We're both going to take you through the required learning. Ian is a big fan of Attack the Block. It's a film that he teaches himself. So what we've done is we've recorded this over a video conferencing app. Apologies for any difference in the usual audio quality, any distortion, anything like that. But hopefully this is maybe a little bit more in-depth and a little more breadth of subject than you would have in the other required learning episodes. So let's get into it. So Attack the Block obviously was released in 2011, directed by Joe Cornish, relatively small budget film, £8 million, that calls upon classic sci-fi and British cinema of the 1970s and the 1980s to tell a new story with familiar icons for the audience. Despite its universal critical acclaim, it bombed at the box office, only grossing £4.1 million worldwide. So as we know, this forms question three of paper two on the Film Studies GCSE, so the question on a contemporary UK film and we need to consider the use of all elements of film form, as well as the context, but specifically aesthetics for this question. So there's a focus on aesthetics for this one, similar to narrative for District 9, representation for Sotsi, all that kind of good stuff. The typical layout of question three and all the other questions on paper two is three or four stepped questions about either the focus for that film, so aesthetics, or some other element of film form. So you've got cinematography, sound, editing, mise-en-scene, contexts and how they are used or referenced in a tap the block typically you'll first be asked to identify an element and then briefly describe it and then you may be asked to discuss how this element is typically used before creating a 15 mark response that's usually an overall exploration of that question specific focus so aesthetics we're not going to do model answers or anything like that because that's a plan somewhere down the line that i might do a whole podcast on model answers and things like that and the final thing, I don't know if you get this with your students sometimes, Ian. So the term from your chosen film threw off a student of mine a couple of years ago on the old spec where they came out of paper one and they said, so you know that question which is from your chosen film? Are we writing about the thing that we did our screenplay on? I was like, no, you're, you're writing about one of the superhero films that we watched. Oh, I wrote about my film that I did my screenplay on. Yeah, don't do that. Um, so your chosen film is Attack the Block because we as teachers are given five for every film and we pick Attack the Block from there so where can you find a copy of Attack the Block so at the time of recording it's available to stream on Amazon Prime and all the other good kind of streaming services and you can buy it online for around about $4.99 it usually tends to go cheap every now and again I bought it on iTunes I think for $3.99 but if you would prefer the old school way of doing things, for some reason, the Blu-ray is £4.25 on Amazon, whereas the DVD is seven quid. So just go with the Blu-ray. <laughs> Good better quality anyway. Absolutely. I would also say on that, I bought 10 copies on DVD and Blu-ray from, I think it was Pound Stretcher a couple of years ago, because it was one of those things that, because it's not been especially popular, just seemed to kind of be floating around like Music Magpie and stuff. And they, it was in there along with a, a bunch of other things. So yeah, I got the Blu-ray for, uh, I think it was a pound and uh, it was the same price as the DVD. So I bought a whole stack of them. So it's always worth checking those if you get the chance as well. Yeah, Music Magpie often do the like two for three quid pre-owned stuff. And like, if you're just going to get a copy to watch for revision, you may as well pay, you know, a quid or something like that. Yeah. Um, and then there are a lot of clips scattered around on YouTube, including on Ian's cheap plug channel, uh, Film Studies Fundamentals, which is very useful. Thanks very much. <laughs> <laughs> so we'll go through the contexts. And again, this is kind of sort of short and sweet. And then we'll, we might elaborate as we work through. Speaking of the institutional context to start off, so the production of the film was handled by Big Talk Pictures, which are more known for films such as Shaun of the Dead, Hot Fuzz, and Scott Pilgrim vs. the World. The, it was funded by Studio Canal, Film 4, the UK Film Council, and Big Talk Productions. Uh, just to go through a little bit of that, so the UK Film Council are a funding body set up to help produce films that promote British culture and tell British stories. I think one thing that I look at when we do a British film originally is what makes a British film and that kind of culture test that the BFI do. Yeah. Have you, are you aware of that? Yeah, so it's a, it's a strange thing because um, both when the um, example of revamping this, they had to use the idea about the culture test, but also like you say, in terms of funding previously, um, 
it was something that had to be used, but I know it's also being used for all sorts of things like our media studies and A-levels and things. If people are choosing their own text and they had to be in certain requirements, that kind of British culture test was one was used. It was an older thing, which the BFI used, which was then used by the Film Council. But the strange thing is the Film Council no longer exists. Um, it got scrapped seven, eight years ago now. And then the funding has now been moved to the BFI. So they still use their, their old cultural test, but they have new funding models of things. I imagine that will probably change as well going forward. But yeah, the key idea really is it doesn't have to be set in Britain necessarily, but there's like a waiting system for different things. You know, our characters from, you know, this setting and you have to reach like a certain threshold uh, and then you're eligible for this particular um, funding money that's there. Yeah. So obviously it was funded via that way. Uh, $13 million. So I mentioned before the UK figure, but this is $13 million was invested into the production and it made nearly 6 million worldwide dollar wise. So it meant that film made a loss, unfortunately. It takes very British, uh, very English characters, I should say, uh, stars and settings and mixes them with the popular genre. The idea that sci-fi maybe helps draw in a bigger audience and maybe felt investors could feel a bit more comfortable. Because one thing that we talk about a lot in terms of genre is the reasons why we look at genre, the reason why genre works. And one of the key ones is for producers. Because again, if you were going to pitch a straightforward horror film, maybe someone like Lionsgate would say, yeah, that's a great idea. We'll give you the money for it. But if you were to go in and say, there's a horror film, but it breaks into a musical halfway through, they might say, well, no, we're not necessarily too fussed about that. But you, as long as it's strictly generic conventions, you're fine and you're adhering to it. Another little tidbit, so the casting of Nick Frost also may have been an influence in factor for more uh, money or financing. So it might, the idea that it might draw in international fans because of his success in Shaun of the Dead, Hot Fuzz, and all those other good films. Going into the social context, the plot was inspired by the director, Joe Cornish, being mugged. Noticing that his assailants were young and visibly scared about what they were doing, Joe Cornish used this as inspiration for his characters in the film before adding the science fiction element. I think that comes across in the later scenes where we see what is really going on with Moses' home life. And we see that okay. actually he's quite alone and he's got that kind of Spider-Man bedding and things like that. And that's something that a lot of students pick up on as well. Very over overlooked scene, I think, that. Uh, in terms of like why it's been included because it is quite a short film and obviously they're working to a budget but to kind of keep that particular scene it is really kind of done for a reason I think it is it does have a lot of power when you kind of suddenly you know you get the background you get the context of Moses um, but yeah it's very much kind of in there because that is what kind of reflected what Joe was thinking when he was being mugged you know who are these people well, I think it was after to be fair but it very much kind of like you know who were these people why are these you know kids mugging me for example you know what what's kind of led them to this so quite an empathetic um take on you know being being assailed but um yeah like you say it, it very much comes through in that moment there um and it's interesting that for Moses it's quite a fleeting thing because for the other characters obviously we get to see their um, bedrooms we get to see their families we get to see their home lives before him obviously as the leader and as perhaps the the most aggressive person it's clear that there is a lot more going on there in terms of uh, his home life than there are the others which have influenced who he is as a character yeah it tells us a lot about his character because the one i was thinking of about in terms of the other people that we see in their families is pest where he comes across as this really arrogant sort of kid and we all know a kid that's like that and he yeah. goes home and like, I think you hear his nan's voice saying, oh, don't be too late. And he's like, all right, nan, love you, bye. And it's like, oh, so that's who he really is. Who is yeah. Moses? And then eventually we find out, you know, he's unfortunately almost neglected, I would say. I think neglected is a fair Absolutely. way of saying it. Yeah. yeah. Um, so to help develop the script and the narrative, Joe Cornish interviewed various people in youth groups in London to find out what kind of weapons they would use if a real life alien invasion occurred. I, I love the idea of him going in with a focus group and saying, what would you grab <laughs> if you saw an alien in the street? Well, what wouldn't I grab? <laughs> and he also used this to develop the colloquial language for the characters. And there's a really interesting kind of infographic fact sheet of all the different colloquial language that they use. I think it was released yeah. to American audiences to explain what it is that they were saying. Yeah, I believe so. I mean, I, I don't know how accurate it is, but the fact that it's produced, you know, with kind of like the same fonts and the same um, uh, media imagery suggests that, yeah, perhaps it was something that was done, maybe for like a film festival or something, as opposed to just, you know, in the lobby of every screening. <laughs> yeah. but, um, By the yeah, way, I'm mean, going to need this to walk in. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, but yeah, it, it exists. Um, it's something that I'm sure you've you've used as well as I have. Yeah. Um, look at what actually does this particular work mean. 
It's set, obviously, the film in a fictional neighbourhood that is said to be located in Brixton, but it's actually supposed to be a composite of various different council estates of London. And Joe Carney said that we wanted to stamp a clear layout on the audience's minds early on, and we couldn't afford an aerial shot, again, low-budget film. So we just show the map at the beginning, and I think that's a good way almost subconsciously for us to go okay this is where we're set then this is the block this is exactly what we're looking at and it's almost like that idea of and i know that you'll agree with this as well that when we do screenplays we often tell the students show us don't tell us and if you can sort of say to us you know we pan down we see a map of the the block just to show the scope of it and to immediately that's better than someone going oh this is a bit like a square this building isn't it let's walk around the corner and do this and all that expositional rubbish It would be interesting if it was filmed these days, whether, for example, they'd just chuck a drone, a drone shot in there, as is the way with all Netflix productions. Um, yeah. You start with just a, a slow drone shot. And I'd, again, that would be very much a kind of director's preference thing. But um, I think that that immediate shot and, and the map and all those things that go around it, which I've talked about before, I think really work. And they're much more powerful than just, you know, let's get a drone up there and let's just see things from above. Yeah, it's really interesting, the whole drone thing, because, I mean, my friend's got one, for whatever reason, he's got one. And they are really good cameras on it. And it's just, I mean, we're only talking about a film that was released nine years ago, you know, would have yeah. been in production 10 years ago. So the fact that technology has advanced that much, so it would have been interesting, like I said, to see what they would have done. Uh, in terms of technological things then, so Joe Cornish has admitted that it's an unusually ambitious first film. And I would say, actually, yes, it is. We were talking about the first Saw film recently, uh, me and Sam on the podcast and that in a way is ambitious in terms of the scope and the ideas that it's got but you can tell that it's maybe someone's first film because it's very what I like to call in a bottle where there's very specific locations that they're going to use again and again and again yeah. whereas this it seems to have much more of a broader scope and more of a broad it almost builds a little bit of a world around these characters and it uses the the budget really well I think so he relished the idea and the energy and the creativity that came from having ambitious ideas but unlimited budget. The aliens themselves were designed to challenge the dominance of digital or CGI monsters in recent films. They are more physical and more effects-driven than in recent films. What do you think about the actual alien kind of the way that they look, I would say? Yeah, it's an interesting one because the first time that I saw it, I found them slightly unconvincing in the black mm. and kind of having learned more about it and then revisiting it, I think it actually works incredibly well. But I think by adding the CGI layer of the kind of darkness to the fur, I do think it detracts slightly. And I, and I completely understand what, you know, Joe was going for. Like he, he wanted this, like the kind of Vanta black, you know, this almost like invisible color just absorbs all light. But I don't think that it works quite that well because you do lose some of the definition of the fur and that kind of stuff. But when you see the behind the scenes and you see the puppets and you see the humans dressed as the animals, you can see the fur and it does it does work really well. But I definitely think there are moments where the CGI just doesn't quite hold up and they do look they they just lack definition almost. Like they the the teeth look really scary. And yes, you want them to be this kind of like black, invisible, scary monster. But I think the lack of definition there, I think, prevents them from being something which is too immediately scary. Um, they're perhaps scarier when you don't know they're coming or when they're there in like en masse. So there are so many of them, you can just see the teeth. But the moments where you get just the one or two by themselves, it's not quite as effective as I kind of would like them to be, I think. I think the motif of the neon teeth work quite well. Especially oh, yeah. in that first kind of the, the looking out. I think that first, I don't know if it's the first scene, but it's maybe when they realize that one's walking towards them and they go, Oh, look, it's over there. And actually, if you're watching that on a dark screen, you can't really see anything that they're looking at. No, no. And then all of a sudden, you see these neon teeth and you're like, Okay, that's the kind of scur, that's the frightening element of it. But yeah, I agree that maybe sometimes the fur gets a little bit lost because we watch um, a kind of behind the scenes video. Think that maybe it was film four or something like that that we pulled from YouTube, and they go through like, oh, this is how it should look. This is the fur. This is you know how it was when we were doing production, and it does get lost a little bit. You're right. So we'll we're going to go through some influences then, um, mainly to do with the use of film form and different things like that, and the references that the film makes, whether intentionally or unintentionally. So the camera work, so again, the establishing shot of Wyndham Tower, it's lit in a very strange way. Um, the, the light is essentially quite bright and it's using quite prominent spotlights at the top. It looks essentially like a spaceship and it looks quite otherworldly. So again, it's almost 
reiterating that idea of this is a science fiction film. It's a little bit different because it's not set outer space. It's not set in an, on another planet or anything like that. But this is what we're trying to go for. And the, the kind of brutalist nature of the building with the grey palette and the teal palette and things like that that go through. Uh, so again, I've already mentioned that it's quite otherworldly. The aesthetic is enhanced when the gang begin to walk around the tower because we see the design of the building and the kind of retro futuristic style that was mm. heavily done when these buildings were made in the 80s or built in the 80s. Uh, yeah. Sorry, 70s, I should say. And it's got the kind of greenish hues and the tints to it and the blue as well, typically reflective of a sci-fi film. And the corridors are very kind of the stenciling of the certain um, floors of the corridor with the numbers and things like that. Very similar to things like Alien when we're going through the Nostromo and Alien and things like that. Um, in terms I mean, of it, it set it, sorry, just to jump in, in terms of you know talking about things like the spaceship and the corridors and lettering. What I found really interesting is you know initially doing some work on this about four years ago now. I think it was three. Um, is to me those things seem quite obvious, and it's you know it's it seems like something which is just like oh yeah I've seen that before. This is clearly referencing something. What I found really difficult was to find exact examples of those things because, again, you know, to me, the building looks like a spaceship, you know, mm -hmm. and you mentioned the corridors and the stenting look like, you know, the inside of the Nostromo from Aliens. But if you try and find those shots, th there's not like a clear, direct, obvious thing. And when you start looking at other films, what you actually realise is what Joe Cornish has done is he's worked with the production designers and, and the people on the film and they haven't really tried to like replicate something. They've just taken like a mashup of all of these different influences and then made their own version from it. And I think that actually makes it a much more interesting film to then study because what you then have to do is you have to look at actually where are these range of influences coming from? Is it just, you know, a, a, from Alien? Is it just from Blade Runner? But actually what you then find is it comes from all sorts. You know, there are things from Singing in the Rain in there. That, you know, there's a whole range of really interesting stuff, which then leads down a really nice, interesting rabbit hole. Um, but the stenciling is, is a really interesting one particularly because, you know, you see that and you do immediately think, oh, that's, you know, they're like the levels of a spaceship. But again, you try and find those. They're not an obvious thing, but that's clearly something that he's decided to put in because of his, you know, his interest and his background and the films that he's watched before. The interesting thing with sort of Hollywood and modern filmmaking is that there's this kind of strive for everything to be original. But I think mm. we're, we're at a point now where nothing is wholly original because you have been influenced by everything that you've seen. You're, you know, you've, you kind of, you've, you've got your, your influences, you've got your things that you go back to, your interests, all that kind of stuff. There's going to be elements of different things. And while it might be an original, maybe narrative and story idea, all the kind of things around it, so your aesthetic, your camera work, you're going to have lifted that from X, Y, and Z. And I think Absolutely. the sound as well, in this film um so the score it kind of shimmers at certain points it uses a lot of dark tones which again is reminiscent of alien but as well kind of the vangelis work with blade runner as well the certain kind of electro points to it because this was done by basement jacks and you know they were i remember them being quite prevalent at the time uh, in the mm -hmm. 90s and things like that for their electro music so it was quite interesting to see what they were going to do with the film and there's even some kind of reference to john williams but that links to something that I do quite a, a lot and I'm going to come to in a little bit in terms with Spielberg and Amblin and things like that that comes yeah, up quite often. Very much so. Just to finish off sound, so you've got futuristic beats and things like that. But I like the idea that they've tried to ground it in the context of the film and the social context of the film. So you've got the kind of grime, hip-hop, garage inflection to it. And it's just combined in the genre with this is where we are. And I think that works quite well. Absolutely. The, the mise-en-scene. So, I mean, the use of the BMX bike, this is something that came up. Obviously, like, when we start teaching it, I think us as film studies teachers go, well, that's really reminiscent of ET because you, you go backwards rather than forwards. Yeah, For me, there was a lot of students that I hired in the first year that I taught it where they went, oh, this reminds me a little bit of Stranger Things. Things, yeah. And, and I just <laughs> thought, I can't, I can't deny that. But obviously, we can't really say that Attack the Bot was influenced by Stranger Things, but we can say that they're both influenced by the same things further yeah. down the line. And I think that's actually quite a way in for some of the students. That, you know, if we go back and watch a couple of scenes from E.T., they're like, oh, yeah, that makes sense now. Yeah. Um, so, again, with aesthetics, just a couple of uh, different things to do with the colour palette. So you were mentioning things like teal and the greyness and the blues and things like that. I think you're a big yeah. fan of the colour palette of the film, aren't you? 
I mean, I was until everyone started talking about it incessantly for the last three or four <laughs> years. But I, I, I do think it's, it's something which is very important because obviously, you know, this isn't the kind of thing you write in a script, but there are certain things you want to communicate. And, uh, and there's a scene quite near the beginning where obviously you've mentioned the neon teeth. So you've got this strange otherworldly color. And there is a scene where they're, they are carrying the, the dead alien they've got from one part of the kind of like estate towards the block and the closer they get towards the block the more the lighting changes and it becomes different and it, and it kind of like has a different quality and characteristic and then the more the aliens arrive the more you get the prevalence of this kind of like teal color used in the ambience and just kind of like generally around the building which would be a very strange thing to see and yet somehow it works incredibly well and it does literally visually indicate that you've got this alien otherworldly presence there that wasn't previously i actually think it's a, it's a very clever use of cinematography and communicating things which you might do differently if you had a bigger budget or if you had a longer running time or you know if you were doing different things but i think it's a really interesting and subtle way to kind of communicate key ideas about things which is really great for film studies because what it allows us to do is to say look yeah you can watch a film and understand it but look think very carefully about why you've got this type of light and why you've got this color now you can see this has been done for a reason this isn't just me looking at stuff and taking it too far if you like yeah I, um, so one thing that I mentioned before that we kind of look at in class is the use of Spielberg and Amblin and this kind of reference to Spielberg's work. So at the beginning when Moses runs into the shed to fight the alien, it's very Amblin in style. So it's that kind of beaming smoke out of this very specific area. Seems quite dark, the sparse use of a key light to highlight the area of conflict and the use of smoke to emphasise where the fight is. And I bring this in in terms of Amblin by looking at very specific films in terms of Spielberg's way of shooting and his kind of I suppose visual style across his films and this kind of auteur argument and things like that where he often does shots where we'll see a character's reaction to something before we see it so we'll see them kind of looking off screen quite shocked at something and then we see what it is that happens a couple of times when Moses sees the aliens coming down and that that great shot of all of the aliens crowded around the window as if they're knocking on saying can we come in yet uh we see moses just looking out straight away first and i think that there's a lot of this which you could just pin it down to et but i think there's a lot of it that links to maybe some, some things like course encounters even jurassic park in there as well where there's a lot of camera shots there's a lot of camera movement and very specific even uses of tone and pacing and editing that link back to spielberg and link back to ambling and the one thing that kind of triggered this off for me was one of the CPDs that I went to when it was the first time that we'd swapped from the old spec to the new spec. And it was basically introducing this to these films because I'd not seen Attack the Block at that point. And right. um, the person who was kind of facilitating the, the, the training showed us the opening scene. And she said, I just want you to tell me what you think this reminds you of. So I was watching it and I thought, this reminds me of Super 8. And then my, and straight away, as soon as I said that, I just went, but it doesn't because Super 8 reminds you of E.T. And Absolutely. So what I've ended up doing is once we've come, once we've finished Attack the Block, because we do this as the kind of last film of year one, as a bit mm -hmm. of a treat for the end of the year, we watch Super 8 after that as well. So okay, it's yeah. like, oh, these films were released at the same time. Clearly Super 8's got more of a budget, but this is what Attack the Block is referencing but Super 8 is almost knowingly and winking to the audience. If you remember those films that you liked in the 80s, well, this is what we're doing, and that's what it's throwing back to. So I think Amblin is a key one that I, I use with my students and that they come to reference a lot, actually. In, in terms of sort of scenes in the film and kind of key scenes that you might use in an answer, the opening scene is always a good starting point, obviously. Um, we, I think we focus a lot on the opening scene of every one of the films that we do because yeah. it essentially sets the scene, it sets the narrative. We were introduced to the character the first time. I really like that cross-cutting of Sam walking through the oh, street yeah. of London. Really well done, especially with the use of the, 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 uh, the non-diegetic sound to it as well, and how it slows instantly when we get introduced to the gang. And I don't think any student that I've shown this film to has expected the alien to come down that quickly or that fast and be in the film straight away, essentially. And I think that's why it works well, because the pace goes quite quickly as well. There are, there are a couple of other scenes. The police van attack is quite good for aesthetics and, and colour palettes and things like that. And then obviously the ending, which a lot of students kind of picked up on the diehard thing of him hanging out the building 
Uh, I think yeah. one kid actually went, this reminds me of a film that my dad used to watch. <laughs> I was like, all right, okay. <laughs> Thank you for that. Uh, but is there anything specifically that you look at that you think is is prevalent that would be used in a sort of answers to exam questions? Uh, so, yeah, I mean, the opening scene, like you said, is, is key on almost any film. I think it is particularly great in this one. And I do wonder, because obviously you mentioned about, you know, how quickly the alien comes down. I wonder how much this is a budgetary thing. I wonder how much this is a, a script thing. But, but the film doesn't hang about. But in not hanging about, what it does really well is it shows, you know, from the tube and from, you know, Sam being essentially with, you know, humans and you know, life and regular London life. Obviously, the further away she gets from this, the darker the scene becomes and the darker it becomes, also it reflects the tone. But it's communicating all that stuff wordlessly. Like she's not, I mean, she's obviously on the phone talking to her mum, but she's not referencing, oh, you know, um, it's getting dark here or I'm feeling worried or anything. You know, Jodie Whittaker does an amazing job with just one or two moments uh, where she has to turn around and look scared or look a bit kind of like more tense as she's going through things. But it's done primarily through the use of kind of like location and just making sure the lighting reflects, you know, the mood and the ambience. So that in the first two minutes before she gets to, you know, the gang, you are starting, whether you realise it or not, to realise that she does not feel safe and therefore you don't feel safe, which then sets up the film for, you know, this actually is how you should be feeling at various points and we're going to communicate it through these these things. I think that's also particularly useful when you're analysing it because what you then realise is from the, from the jump, basically, it isn't just what a character is doing or saying, it's all the other filmmaking stuff that goes around and into it. The one which I think is particularly useful is uh after they've killed the alien as i mentioned kind of going back into the block because again if you're analyzing the the, the aesthetics of the block you know i've mentioned this before but it's you know you get them positioned in a way which makes them look like they're walking through an airlock or you know going into a spaceship especially the way in which they're shot from behind so you know they've got their hoods up and they've got these trousers on so it looks almost as if they're in kind of like a spacesuit, if you like so again they're leaving you know the safety or relative or the, the re leaving the streets to go into the relative safety of what they believe is the block but it turns out they're locking themselves in which again links back to things like alien um, event horizon all those other kind of like horror films like that but i think as you mentioned there like the police fan scene is then an interesting one because it does then help to shift the tone from you know, like the kind of hoodie horror um sci-fi film to that kind of like horror thing mm -hmm. you know because you get the very visceral attacks on the police officers you do get the blood splatter you get the editing and the kind of control of pace which means that you are supposed to be feeling tense at these moments so it's really kind of ramping up again those other influences that joe cornish has got so you've got another genre in there but it's it's been influenced by for example those things like you know, the editing by the aesthetics so that when you are watching it you've got a whole bunch of other things to be considering and a whole bunch of other different genre films to be looking at um i don't look at the ending too much actually i have to say i think i think the ending does very much to me personally feel like it's a kind of victim of the of the budget um yeah. i might be kind of doing a bit of a disservice to it but i know that the nakatomi plaza thing from die hard is definitely a, a very purposeful reference um i think the use of the flag is a really nice additional thing in there as well and there's a lot you can do with the iconography there but yeah as an, as an ending i'm not a massive fan of that last kind of couple of minutes and i think in terms of if you want to analyze you know like denouements and stuff there are end of like act two um you know Moses and him kind of making his sacrifice before that I think there's probably a little bit more in there which I would look at personally but mm. yeah I tend to look at the, the kind of the the first kind of 20 minutes or so of the film because if we're talking about aesthetics you're talking about well how's that then set up and established and that's what the beginning of the film tends to do yeah I think there's it's quite a throwaway shot and I know that a lot of my students don't necessarily pick up on it on the first time but for foreshadowing when she walks past the spray painted names on the wall, yeah, I, yeah. I, I think on a second viewing, that makes a little bit more sense. And think actually a couple of times we've had students where they say, Oh, that's their names. I didn't realize right. that beforehand. And I'm wondering if I was to sit down and ask Joe Cornish, like, was that a kind of a way to subliminally introduce these characters? But is it maybe that someone's read the name Moses spray painted on a wall and just gone, whatever, I'm not necessarily interested in that. And then you forget about it by the time that you actually meet these characters. Um, yeah. But I think it's, it, that would count for me under aesthetics because it's the building of the social context and things like that and where we are. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, in terms of, like, if you were going to sit down and ask, I can tell you what he would say, having uh, heard his response to that. And it's, it's a very purposeful thing. You know, they, they did that as part of the production. They put it there. And I guess you can then read into kind of like why they did it in terms of, 
because if you think about yes it's introducing the characters but actually by doing it via graffiti or via i don't know like a poster a picture in a newspaper or like a text on someone's phone or like i know it wasn't around then but you know like a picture of you know social media instead of like snapchat or something mm. but the graffiti obviously has a lot of connotations to it you know in terms of you know a tagging an area of you know laying claim to something specific so i think the idea of introducing the characters is kind of like as a quite like you say like a throwaway shot and you know joe mentioning they did it very much on purpose so that people knew you know if you were to watch again this is who the characters are and this is their kind of ends but i think the the end of the, the purpose of using graffiti itself has an awful lot of connotations there which i think is um again maybe something which has actually shifted in the last you know 10 years certainly you know when yeah. we were you know gra graffiti and you know tagging it's very different to now because it's now referred to as street art and the idea of you know murals and things has, has changed and developed um so i don't know whether that the idea of a tag has perhaps remained as consistent a, a kind of like theme if you like that it that it perhaps used to be i always thought it was a crime and that was kind of um squandered to me a couple of years ago when i was working in a college and a student submitted a film where you could you they'd film themselves literally doing graffiti on a wall and i flagged yeah. it up with the the kind of head department and he just went is graffiti illegal i thought i don't know is it and we were kind of like what do we do about it is it fine does it stay in does it not what are they trying to achieve here because again what i think is really useful with this is the first 20 minutes or so establishes an awful lot of stuff but then kind of the picking apart of that, and again, thinking about this from a very judicious point of view as to looking at actually, why is that shot there? If this is only an hour and 20 odd, you know, why was you know, this included when maybe it didn't need to be? Or So, so for example, you know, the one which I've mentioned you know, a fair bit now and is on the YouTube channel is that very early shot where the, the crane shot comes down the, the, the front of the building. And it's a, it's a fairly innocuous thing that you have a, a crane shot. But actually, when you then go back and look at his influences as a filmmaker and also you know the things he read and the things he watched growing up you then realize this is a very deliberate choice that he's made in terms of it reflects the beginning of the star wars films mm. because the camera starts at the top with the stars and then it moves downwards and normally it'll put you on a planet or you know it's an imperial star cruiser or whatever it might be but here what it does is it literally goes right well this is where the aliens come from this is where our characters are going to be but you could do that in a million ways but the choice of just having that one crane shot is literally just him going i used to watch star wars and I love Star Wars, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to steal a camera movement. But you're never going to notice that unless you kind of, you know, you listen to the commentary as he kind of mentions there, or, you know, you read some of the interviews and things. And the really interesting film for me, the interesting thing about this film for me is, like you said, it's very ambitious, but it's not only that it's ambitious, but it's almost as if he's been given the opportunity to do it. You know, yeah. as a first time filmmaker, you're probably going to go, right, well, you know, here's your budget. Um, here's your deliverables, we want it done on this day in X, Y, and Z. But it also feels like he's had not only an element of control over the direction, but also, you know, the editing and, you know, the art direction, all this kind of stuff, which a lot of directors just won't have. And I think that's the really interesting thing to then pick apart and go, well, actually, why do we, you know, have X, Y, and Z? You know, why is this thing there? Because most of the things do actually lead back to Joe Cornish and his, you know, his wants for this film and I think when you watch it more that's why it becomes more successful because you like you say you know you watch the beginning and you go oh, it reminds me of Super 8 actually no it doesn't remind me of this all of those things almost everything in the film which I kind of look at is there for a purpose you know it's, and it's a great film to get your kind of teeth into in terms of analysis so understanding that actually when films are made like this this is when they're really interesting and when they're really rich. Yeah, I think one of the names that maybe I was a bit remiss to to forget to mention quite early on was John Carpenter because I think yeah. Joe Cornish himself has come out and said that Joe Carpenter, John Carpenter was a, quite a big influence on this I sort of things like Assault on Precinct 13 and you know yeah I mean maybe even elements of the thing it was it were kind of going down the horror route a little bit yeah and and again those like there's a lot of stuff because you can kind of take those things and you can apply them to context you can apply them to style but again there are a lot of things which if you are thinking about like a direct filmmaker again he to be able to put them in the film is incredibly impressive so you know a sort of precinct 13 for example doesn't look like this film there aren't that many references visually for it 
However, when you then start looking at what you thematically speaking, you have a bunch of people trapped in a particular area and you've got, you know, people trying to break in and they're trying to protect these people. You know, in Sorton Precinct 13, you've got um, some people we've never met before and, you know, politically or socially wouldn't mix. You've then got that in Attack the Block as well. So again, there are those kind of influences. But the thing is, is perhaps a slightly more direct and obvious thing in terms of aesthetics because obviously you've got practical effects here and you know that's one of the things that joe cornish wanted to do he wanted to scare his actors essentially he wanted the kids to be scared to get the genuine reaction in the same way that something like the thing does because you've got a lot of practical effects going on in the film you know, it's a really interesting thing about the opening scene which, which we kind of as a group generally students tend to pick out but then we don't go into kind of like the reasons for it the um the shot of sam walking through the market and the kind of tracking shot that goes with it's really interesting that the tracking shot is obscured by the market stalls because in most cases you would probably follow her on the front or behind and you would see her walking through the crowd but by setting that camera up almost kind of like behind the stalls almost as if it's in the road and then following as she walks along it very clearly establishes that idea of she's just in a world and just in a place and it's yeah. almost like we're meant to be there it's like you know we're not controlling this particular situation you know we're not got a steady cam we're not asking people to move here there and everywhere this is literally just a woman walking home through a market stall and that tracking shot is a really nice way of going look there's all these other people but she's the one person who's in the frame she's in the center we're just going to focus on her and follow her just as she makes this journey because then what it then does and again this shows that perhaps you know Cornish had a hand in the, the editing as well to an extent almost literally the next shot is her walking up a street but from a completely different angle completely different perspective again people are walking the opposite direction but that massively and instantly in the space of two or three seconds now shows that she's alone and isolated so we talked about excuse me for example like the lighting and stuff but by having this thing of like she's surrounded by people you know she's walking home she's on a phone it's all good so suddenly walking up a road where there's there's no light everyone's going in the opposite direction and suddenly there's no one else in the road it's like three or four seconds and it's like look how much information he's told you straight away instantly yeah it's such clever filmmaking and really kind of like precise filmmaking as well because it's almost like that typical use of an open frame to make something feel busy to make something feel real and realistic that there's it's not that you know we've just stopped so many people from walking through the scene it's like it needs to be busy it needs to be this yep. is basically real life so there was a question i think on the sams that i've used um as kind of like a tester and I think the very first question on it is um, identify the genre of your chosen film. And I get a lot of students going, what do we write for this? What, what, what is it? Is it a sci-fi? Is it a crime? Is it horror? Is it whatever? And the one thing that I always say is it can be anything that you choose it to be as long as you can tell me why you think that. And then yeah. I get one kid going, well, tell me why it's a sci-fi. And I'm like, no, that's your job. Um, but I think that some questions like that can throw um, students every now and again. But I think as long as you're sticking to what is generic, generic convention, essentially, mm -hmm. and, you know, we've been through it, it's like it's the rules of the genre. Like, is, is there anything in this that is subverting the sci-fi genre? No, probably not. And I think if you were to find something, it might be very nitpicky. Is there anything in this that sub subverts the horror genre? No, not necessarily. You might argue that some, some comedic elements do a little bit, you know, maybe some throwaway lines that Nick Frost says every now and again. But mm. I think, again, even if you were to go down the route of saying that this is an action film, I would take that and believe that as long as you could kind of back that up a little bit. And I think this is just clear of the influences that we've mentioned. Yeah, and again, this is why it's a particularly useful film because you can... Well, not even that. I, I think really is like from a teacher's point of view is I, I teach this in terms of three genres. So sci-fi, um, horror, and then I kind of bring in what we call like hoodie horror, which is one of those things which which was definitely like a popular genre for a good three or four years and yeah. seems to have disappeared a little bit. And it was this idea about basically the kind of like the teen teens gone wild kind of thing from the 50s and 60s but kind of like amplified so you know previously they'd listen to rock and roll now they stalk people and they cave their heads in uh you know in the 50s and 60s they'd be drinking coca-cola and uh maybe one or two of them would you know think about or talk about some drugs because they know someone who knows someone uh in the hoodie horror genre they were selling smack for example like it was this kind of like this modern day version of it the thing with any of them really is, like you said, it doesn't matter so long as you can explain 
wide, but obviously because of the focus from this um, this question on this particular exam, is it's not just kind of like why is it that, but you do have to pick up those visual visual references. Mm -hmm. So when I'm teaching it, for example, it's like yes, it's a sci-fi film because it's got aliens because of X, Y, and Z, but you have to be really precise. And also say, yeah, it's a sci-fi because it looks like a sci-fi film and here are the influences. And, that, and that's the tricky thing that to get those good marks, you have to be able to do those things. But it's really tricky as a student because obviously you might have only been watching films for, I don't know, 10, 12 years or whatever, but you haven't been analysing them, you haven't been thinking about them. As film teachers, what we have to do is to watch these things. And like you said, when you first saw something, you think, oh, right, well, that reminds me of this. That's what we have to do all the way through these. So that then when we say to you know students, for example, this is a sci-fi film because it looks like X, Y, and Z, we have to think about what those X, Y, and Zs are, and we have to pick apart those things. It's then tricky then putting that information across and saying to students, yeah, well, actually, that individual pipe there reminds me of a pipe from one of the lab scenes from you know Blade Runner or you know this individual... Um, like shot here is taken from what I believe to be a photograph which suggests contextual stuff but that's kind of what we have to do and this is why fundamentally one of the first things I say to students when they decide to take film studies is you have to watch films yeah you know don't, don't just watch the stuff that we're showing in in lessons don't just watch the same thing that you've watched 20 times over and over you know you have to just watch a wide range of stuff and that's why in for example like the booklets which I've done at the end of them, it's got um, some uh, additional viewing. And the additional viewing are, like, if you can't watch this film, we just see some clips of them, things which I think have either influenced directly or indirectly these particular films. And I think that's one of the key things for this really is no matter what it is you are studying, try and see other films which deal with similar themes or look similar or something and really lean into you know, your, your teachers. Um, and for us you know dvd commentaries or you know interviews or you know whatever it might be so we can get those ideas and influences that we might have missed as well yeah coming back to the hoodie horror thing so i mean you reminded me instantly of um harry brown did you see harry brown the michael Caine yeah, film that had uh, plan yeah. b in it and am i right in saying that the film eden lake is about hoodies it's a horror film yeah. i've never seen it i always see the poster and i just think oh i wonder what that's about and then i think it turns out that it's hoodies that are kind of terrorizing these people yeah i mean it's, it ends up being quite specific like one person but it's essentially it's like a, it's, it's basically a horror film like a very kind of traditional slasher film but it just so happens the protagonist is essentially kind of like you know stereotyped as this you know this chav to use a better word for example because they happen to wear a hoodie because they happen to have a, a particularly right. nasty accent. it's um i can't remember his name now jack thingy ah oh, it was in money monster and all these other films and game of thrones and stuff jack o'connell Yes, there you go, Jack O'Connor, yeah, yeah. Um, in one of his kind of like early breakout roles. Um, right. And he is he's an awful person in it. But yeah, this was very much part of that kind of, yeah, hoodie horror uh, moment yeah. that, was, that was going around. Because one thing that we do actually mention, and for some reason this isn't in my notes, I can't, I can't decipher as to why, is throwing it back to those riots that happened in 2011. Or yeah. I think it was 2010, 2011. Of yeah, yeah. The, the the quite do you remember the uh, Mission Impossible I think it was Ghost Protocol publicity shot that was released so it was as the riot in London was breaking out Paramount tweeted here's Tom Cruise in the next <laughs> in the next Mission Impossible film and he's wearing a hoodie and there's just things burning in the background and it was I think if we throw back to that because there's a lot of articles around that time of David Cameron saying we need to ban the hoodie we need to you know get rid of hoodie culture and things like that and obviously well, it, it, in the end his thing was hug a hoodie wasn't it it was kind of like yeah. and this the, like and this is the weird thing about it is it, it's almost as if that, that kind of uh, demonization of you know, young people both in the media and you know because of you know the rights and that kind of stuff it's almost like it kind of came to a point and and suddenly there was you know some empathy going around which people had to realize and again i think that links quite nicely back to that shot about you know like moses in his background is you know the, the riots and, and again you know for people who are younger who won't remember them particularly clearly there was just so much anger from people who were you know victims of it but actually what was important really is then looking at this, the systematic reasons. Why did this happen? You know, what, what, what kicked off with it? You know, what was the, the spark? And it, what, it didn't just come from, you know, the, the shooting of Mark Duggan. It didn't just come from, you know, one or two people being annoyed and wanting to protest against, you know, police brutality. And obviously we've seen a lot of, you know, similar things in terms of, you know, the Black Lives Matter movement, especially in America where, you know, peaceful protest by one or two people turned into essentially a, you know, like a free fall on a riot. But the thing that came from 
this incident over here in 2011 is obviously it, it actually came after the release of Attack the Block. Mm -hmm. But if you look at some of the, the photojournalism at the time, there are very, very interesting kind of parallels in terms of the iconography, like you say, you know, with the hoodies, but also, you know, people standing on top of cars, people setting fire to not their buildings, not where they live, but, you know, institutions or buildings or shops, which, you know, they couldn't afford to shop in, but, you know, had been sold a dream that this is what you should buy, for example. Um, some interesting kind of, you know, shots of groups together. And those groups were wearing hoodies, not because, you know, they didn't necessarily want to be caught or anything like this. I'm sure that might have part owned into it, but because it, it's their identity, you know, it's showing them as a group. And again, that's the kind of things you get in Attack the Block where they're not necessarily wearing hoodies to hide themselves from CCTVs because, you know, that's who they are. This is what they do and how they associate with each other. And this is how they form identities. And it's, it's an interesting thing because normally when we talk about context, as we've said all the way through, it's things from the past, which have informed what's going on. But the riots were so contemporaneous, uh, contemporaneous that it's tricky to say, well, this has influenced the film because obviously it hasn't. But again, this is another success from the film and why I, I often look at it is because you can see how well done the film is and how accurate it is in its portrayal of that part of the country. Because when you then see reality, you can see those, those parallels there. Yeah, because even though we're talking about riots that happened a year after the film probably wrapped filming, you've got to think that obviously it's reflective of society at the time almost Absolutely. and different things that were happening, whether they were violent or not. It was, we, I mean, we were used to seeing kids in hoodies and things like that. And there was, I think I remember growing up and there was quite a big thing of if you were walking down the street or for whatever reason and there was like three lads in hoodies on the corner, you would cross the road to avoid them. And it was this kind of, not, not, not necessarily unwritten, because I think it was reported on enough, but it was this kind of, you weren't necessarily afraid of it, but somebody else told you to be afraid of it. Yeah, it came from that kind of realm, I think. And I think this is something that almost the film, when we start with Sam walking down the street and then finding a way into the gang and being mugged and all that kind of stuff, it starts with our own subliminal subconscious fear of, the kids in hoodies they aren't here to say hello how are you and help us across the road they're here yeah. to ask us for our purses um and i think again that is something that is done really well in this film and if you were to get a question on context that is definitely the way to go i would say if not yeah, joe cornish's film filmic influences yeah uh, because both of those two things you know come come together because essentially what you have in the film is like you say is, is near the beginning you've got this idea of a character who's feeling uneasy because they're being mugged which links back to his context of this you know his experience of it but how does he then put that on screen well he puts that on screen and he creates that feeling for us by his filmic influences by the things which he recognizes and he knows and he grew up with um that's perhaps one of the reasons why it doesn't work as well if you aren't familiar with some of these some of these contexts but one of the things i think it does really well is again is creating that empathy not just through that shot of moses bedroom but what you have is you you have a character who is in sam mugged who becomes quite vulnerable who feels also quite angry um she goes through this kind of quite quick stage of you know stages of grief for example but then what happens is the exact same feelings then get put upon to the kids who mugged her and that comes to them through both the aliens invading their home area and them being made to feel as though that they are both literally being invaded, but you know, they are being picked off, that they're being killed. You know, and, this, and you've then also got that from other external influences. So you've got, you know, the police apparently not believing them. You've got high hats who's trying to hunt them down. And suddenly you then start extrapolating this and you go, well, actually, this is what the experience is like for those teenagers. You know, mm -hmm. in the real world it isn't aliens but it is you know parents it is teachers it's maybe you know social workers maybe it's the media um you know in worst case scenarios it is the police you know and, and these are external factors and and you can take the film as a giant allegory for you know young teenagers for inner city life for you know black people for um uh, underdeveloped and underrepresented areas of london it's it's a really interesting thing to look at if you take those contemporary thoughts most contemporary ideas which unfortunately now is still as relevant as ever. Yeah, yeah. And I think even recent contemporary images of John Boyega doing the Black Lives Matter march and protests and things like that, just yeah. I, I think Attack the Block even trended on Twitter after that point um, and things like that. So it was still kind of prevalent at that time, yeah. Yeah, and it's interesting to see that so many people are kind of coming 
to it. You know, obviously, you, you've spoken about the fact that it wasn't a particular success at the box office. It, critically, it did it did okay. You know, it wasn't like it was an award winner or anything. Um, it did pretty well with audiences in terms of you know audience response and stuff. But it definitely seems to be a film which is picked up kind of not only sort of you know speed and being recognized recognized more often but in terms of the the general amount of kind of love and appreciation of it as a as a film and you know i'd, I'd like to say that the the fact that it's on you know film uh, gcse part in part of that kind of helps to you know create that but i do think people are just kind of coming to it now and, and seeing just not how good the film is but again that it does have these themes and these ideas which just translate really well and and have stayed relevant Know, whether it's unfortunate or not but actually is a is a really well made explanation of those ideas mm. it is unfortunate with films like this where people end up finding it way after the point where it needed it and yeah. you know uh, there was there was something that um, a student sent to me on uh, instagram actually through the uh, the oasis film twitter instagram um, he finished a couple of years ago but he was the first one of the first students that i put through this spec and he sent me something about, do you ever think they're going to do an attack the block too? And I said, I, I don't think so. I think if, if we were going down the typical route of, did this was this film successful? They're going to say no, because it wasn't. But I wouldn't even know how you'd begin to kind of digest that. But for, for whatever reason, there's a little bit of an appetite for it now. Um, I don't think we'll get it. <laughs> but, yeah. No, and it's, it's a particularly interesting one, because off the back of um, John Boyega's speech, which you mentioned, he publicly said that he'd been speaking to Joe Cornish in the last couple of years about doing a sequel. And I remember, I can't remember if he was asked directly, but um, Joe Cornish has, was certainly asked at our BFI session about, you know, the idea of a sequel and stuff. And his response was very much kind of, well, we never really planned for it. It's not something that I'm kind of working on now, but I'm open to it if, and it was very much if the other actors are. Right. So, you know, the, the stars may well align on this one. Mm. I, I don't think necessarily that it w it should be a direct sequel, if you like. Like, I don't think you can just have, you know, you, you couldn't do like a, a Die Hard 2 where, you, you know, you take this from the tower block and actually you're just going to extend it to, I don't know, like um, a shopping centre, for example. It just, you know, just like increase the budget. I do think it would have to be about, for example, Moses and, you know, what his life has been like and what his experience has been like, you know, having been arrested and being vilified, but actually the community know what he's like and his kind of experience from that. And yeah, you throw some more aliens in and maybe he comes like the Obi-Wan part of it, you know, because he's like, oh, this is how you kill them kind of thing. But I do think it needs to be, you know, grounded in character like this, this film is. Yeah. Because um, if it is just another genre film or just another kind of, you know, sequel, um, I, I can't see it, can't see it working, but... I, I do think that it's that idea of the you know the lightning in the bottle, you know, something very difficult to catch and um, it's very rare. It did happen on this film? It's just such a shame that it wasn't appreciated at the time that that that, that was the case. Yeah, I, I don't think it helped us. And as we talk about Kermode a little bit, but I, I don't know whether you've ever heard or or gone back and watched the. This actually, the, yeah, was something that I was going to mention because we we listened to this uh, in the context lesson. His, yeah, his, his and Simon Mayo's um, interview with Joe Carnish. Yeah, so it's it's not like I I feel like Kermode you know tanked the film necessarily, but there were certain things in the marketing of the film which I think set the film up to fail. So the whole kind of you know produced by Edgar Wright, the whole you know stars um, uh, Nick Frost. Yeah. Um, I don't think that helped the film. I think if they had had, I don't know who would have marketed. It. I assume probably um, Film Four actually, but I think if they had stood by the film and had real kind of like conviction behind it and sold it as this, you know, genre piece, you know, a bit like Super 8 was because JJ Abrams then was only known to like a few select people and it wasn't a huge film by any means, but it was sold, you know, on the spectacle of, you know, you watch the trailer and it's, you know, lens flare and it's BMXs and it's clearly like, you know, Amblin Goonies, you know, yeah. for a new generation. If they'd done that with this film, I think it could have really kind of, it could have found that, audience you know it could have triggered that sense of nostalgia which you know that that classic 18 to 30 kind of demographic you know wants but i i do feel as though you know certain things like putting you know on the on the poster from the producers of Shaun of the dead you then get a critic you know going watching the film going oh well, it wasn't as good as Shaun of the dead like that's not going to help whatsoever because the, the key thing that comes out of that is joe cornish having a bit of a kind of not necessarily an argument but saying to mark Maud, like you've not reviewed attack the block you've reviewed Shaun of the dead and that's just the way that it is. And actually that kind of spurs a conversation into criticism and 
whether thing you know whether things are necessarily fair, I suppose, lack of a better word. But I mean, yeah. it, it's it's difficult because I think we all end up just finding ourselves trying to compare something with something else, and you, it's difficult to move away from that. Um, I mean, I know I'm guilty of of it myself with a number of different podcasts that we've done on here talking about film franchises and things like that. But it's it's a really interesting conversation to get an idea of this person who's gone out and he's put so much effort and love and hard work into this film and time into this film. And he's, he's run the gambit and he's now at the point where he's tired. He just wants to rest, but he's being dragged around everywhere to promote it and say <laughs> even more things about it. And then he gets his back up a little bit, but it's a, yeah. it's a good clip to use. Yeah, it, it really is. Because also, I mean, Kermo is, is very now kind of like, not just apologetic, but he's very aware of the fact that he got it wrong. You know, he, he said on numerous occasions since he's, he's said to Joe, you know, they've done interviews together where he's publicly said, I, I, I got it wrong. I called it wrong. This is, this is a great film when I didn't, you know, review it for its merits at the time. You know, part of that is because as a critic, you're watching seven, 10 films a week, you know, you're kind of perhaps not paying, you know, mindful attention to certain things. And perhaps it comes across as a generic genre piece. But the kind of the fullness of time and understanding, again, all those bits of context we've talked about, I think does allow you to understand that actually this is, you know, like a passion project. This is something which, you know, he's put an awful lot of heart and soul in and has been very successful in a lot of cases. And I think if you don't perhaps understand that, you know, Joe Cornish has been making short films forever, you know, he, when he was making his Adam Joe TV show for Channel 4, for example, they were making, you know, Star Wars sci-fi films using, you know, action figures. And if, you know, if no one's ever seen these, you should watch them on YouTube because they are hilarious. But he's basically practicing to make a film. So, you know, when it comes to making his first feature film, having, you know, been essentially messing around, but, you know, learning his craft for 20 years, he's actually really successful in doing this. It might look like, you know, a, a fairly standard genre piece to people. But again, if you dissect individual moments, if you dissect individual camera movements or, you know, choices of you know, hoodies or, you know, letters, even like the font of the letters, the stencil on things. These are all things which have been informed by him as a person and his, um, his, his kind of like, both his passions, but also like his craft now, you know, his, his job. That's when I really think you get to see and understand the, the kind of how great and how successful this film is. But again, you know, if you're, if you're reviewing seven to 10 films a week, you can't do that with every, every filmmaker and every director. And, you know, to be fair, most films aren't made like this. You know, most films are very much a case of, you know, here's a script, we've got a crew in place, right, who can we get to fit A, B and C together? They're going to be the director. And it's not often that you get a writer-director um, who's given this much freedom and, and therefore been so successful in it. And I think it's a really interesting film to look at from that kind of alter point of view as well. Yeah, I think the one thing that, I'm taking myself as well as the students from this uh, this recent spec of film studies is as soon as you read into the context and you know more about the context of the film, it kind of opens up the world a little bit to you oh, yeah. and you are, you're allowed to appreciate it a little bit more. I mean, I have a whole new appreciation for District 9 since yeah. reading into the whole apartheid metaphor and things like that. Um, again, the knowing that Sotsi was made for this reason, this reason, it reflects this, it's post-apartheid. I mean, even the stuff that I've recently learned about for Rebel and for Ferris and the linking of the two and even like the, the things about the Cold War and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. The one thing that actually got me quite intrigued, um, so this is going to date this podcast a little bit when I say it, is that the teaser trailer for the new Call of Duty film came out yesterday. They're not film game. And that's okay. Cold War. So it's set during the Cold War. And in my head, I just went, I'm going to tell the students about this when it gets released, when we're doing Ferris and Rebel. Go and play that game and you might understand a little bit more about yeah, it. Yeah. But again, like, if there's any kind of nugget that we can give to the students is read as much around a film as you can. I would say afterwards, maybe not beforehand. Because I think yeah, yeah. If, you, if you do it beforehand you're almost going in a little bit too clever for it. And you're almost thinking like, well, that didn't quite happen. And I was expecting this to happen. But if you, go, if you read around it afterwards, it definitely opens your mind a little bit more into the intention. The director's intention is something that we talk about a lot, actually. And what was the reason for this? What was the reason? You mentioned what was the reason to include a shot earlier. And, you know, as, as we probably both discussed with our classes, 20% 20, 20 of the, the, what they shoot on set and during the production ends up in the film the other 80 percent is on the floor you know or used to be on the floor it's now in the recycling bin uh, <laughs> and doesn't make it so why is it that we are actually seeing this and why what is the importance of that shot or that scene yeah completely yeah. and and i do think that idea about 
finding things after is, is really important because you know you will do the same in your classroom you want to try and replicate that that feeling and sense of watching a film for the first time in essentially a cinema because that's how the films are made they they you know even in the era of streaming films are designed for people to sit down without you know another screen in front of them um you know in the dark not talking to people and taking those things in and, and if you go into a film with too much knowledge you you're not appreciating that experience of watching it for the first time and being kind of you know blown away or you know scared or whatever it might be and it's that that stuff afterwards which is designed to come to the fore when you watch it at home when you buy it on dvd when you watch it on streaming when you catch it on you know channel four at 11 o'clock on a saturday because you want to watch a film you know that's where those extra bits really come out but actually as film students what we want to be able to do is to find those bits from ourselves i mean dvd commentaries are the most invaluable thing mm. um that you can get hold of and there are a couple of different versions of the attack the block dvd if you can get the one which has got the the i think it is two discs but it's certainly got an entire section there are like five or six commentaries on the film which is fairly unheard of these days um if you can get hold of those if you can watch and listen to those you'll learn so much um and you'll quickly find that actually that's where your teachers get all your ideas from yeah uh, and that actually most of the ideas will just get repeated ad nauseum and you you will find them anywhere and everywhere um I mean, obviously, the next best thing is being able to speak to the director, you know, personally. Yeah. You know, if you can do that, you know, even better. Um, but, you know, director's commentaries, um, interviews, which you can find. Although, to be honest, press junkets are not good. You know, there's ones where, they, you know, they're sat down and you've got, you know, someone from, I don't know, Good Morning Britain or whatever, um, or some team magazine just saying, you know, what was your favourite thing about filming this? You know, those are not particularly useful, but those those longer form interviews. Um, Joe Cornish has actually done a few recently on on this film. Again, since it's kind of come to prevalence with just some random podcasts, you know, about script writing and screenwriting and yeah. stuff. There's so, one podcast called Script Apart, I think. Yes. Yeah. 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 Those um, are the where you find out those are really good bits of information. Yeah. One thing that I've I've pulled as well from YouTube is the Film Four Special, which is quite interesting. It's only a ten yeah. minute short thing, but they're really useful. They've done them for all sorts of films. I think we've got one for Whiplash as well. Um, but when you mentioned about the DVD and trying to get hold of the two disc one, I think I managed to get, and I think there's still some copies of it floating around. The Blu-ray that's got the little white lies book inside it as well. That's really oh, yeah. useful. Yeah. Nice. Uh, there's a lot of different things in that which are really useful just to have a quick read on things. Yeah. And, yeah. We're really fortunate. I don't know if you're able to do this with the new spec that you've you've put together, the new scheme even, is that we're really fortunate that we get enough time to watch the film twice. So okay. what I do is I introduce the film, I introduce, so maybe aesthetics, maybe representation, whatever it is. We watch it as if this is the first time you've seen it, you're just going to watch it. Then we do contexts and then we watch it again. And you can see the kind of cogs turning a little bit of going, oh, so, yeah. right, so you've told me that and I can now understand that and things like that. So that's really useful. But then if you don't get the chance to do that, so if anyone's listening and, you know, you only got to see it once in class or anything, this is why we advise that you go back and watch the films again, definitely before you do your exam. Um, oh, yeah. Because I just think the more that you can see them, the more you're going to understand and the more that those kind of imagery is going to stick into your head a little bit. Yeah, completely. It's yeah, it, it's that idea of you know you're watching a film. It's in this case, you know, 100 more 100 minutes or less than. Um, you know, some films are slightly longer. There's an awful lot of stuff visually that's there, and you only need to pick out maybe like three sequences from it. But even in those three sequences, you might be seeing you know 30, 40 shots, and you need to be able to remember some of those. There's an awful lot of stuff. So you know that classic thing of interleaving. Yeah, you watch the film, and then later on you watch the clips, and then later on you've just got some screenshots of them, and you remind yourself of those. But absolutely, like as close to the exams as possible. You know, especially in the era of you know mock exams being particularly important. You know, watch the the film the night before, or certainly watch the clips. You know, get if you've got key scenes that you've been talking about, make sure you've watched those as close to to the exam as possible. And you know, most people are probably going to be able to. Um, watch the clips on you know YouTube on their phone as well so you know if you've got the, yeah. the option the ability you know watch that watch a couple of the clips just before you go into the exam just so they're fresh in your mind definitely listen to this podcast before you go into the exam absolutely <laughs> uh, you know <laughs> on YouTube you know exactly. click uh, like and subscribe and share that away that will help I'm sure oh cheap show yeah let's get it in there somewhere that is it all right I think we've kind of uh, covered the, the length and the breadth of it, I would say. Yeah, um, the, uh, yeah, there is there is an awful lot. Uh, I could quite happily talk for two hours about the use of um, the, the kind of the riot van and what that 
suggests I could talk for at least 45 minutes about the use of um, very specific, um, I forget what they are now, MPCs 2000, MPC 2000s that Jasement, uh, Basement Jacks used to do some of the sampling. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's, it, I, if anyone hasn't yet worked out, I really, really like this film. <laughs> you can save that for when they add it to the air level, when you have to go more in depth with everything. Uh, if and when BFI sessions become a, a live thing again, we think they might be virtual next year. Um, we often do an awful lot on Attack the Block, you know, come to those. Those are wonderful. We, we were lucky enough to have Joe Cornish, uh, not this year, but last year. That was, that was a wonderful event. We were very, very fortunate for that. Um, but yeah, even in, even in those, that's a great opportunity to kind of like discuss things. You know, you're like one, I might put an image on screen and suggest something and then, you know, an audience member suggests one thing and suddenly someone from a different school entirely from a different part of the country has got their own ideas to it. And suddenly you've got this like amazing class discussion um, of like three or four different people who've never met before, just like adding their own ideas and we learn from those. And that, that is absolutely brilliant. Um, I do love the idea of being able to take my class to one of those, but then I get the idea that I'll be sat there and one of my students will put their hand up and I'll be like, please be good, please be good, please be good, please be good. <laughs> and the then they say first... something that blows my mind that they've never said in class before. Well, yeah, you never know, like kind of the, the being there at the moment and the time. Thank you very much for listening to the required learning for Attack the Block. Once again, I'd like to thank Ian for his time and his enthusiasm for the film. I'd also like to thank Ian for his exemplary knowledge organiser that gave us a lot of the content for this episode. I'll be back on Friday with a full film commentary for Attack the Block to support this episode and your revision for Paper 2. You can help support Farrandon Film by following us on Twitter at Farrandon Film, by liking us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Farrandon Film, and leaving a five-star review at your favourite podcast provider. Stay safe, look after each other, and I will see you next time.